listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about books about topics that can be difficult to discuss. Up first, we talk to author Bonnie J. Ruff about her book, Beyond Birds and Bees, that looks at the differences between sexual education in the Netherlands and the United States. Then, we chat with writer Christy Coulter, whose essay about alcohol culture and women in the corporate world went viral a few years ago and led to her book, Nothing Good Can Come From This, about her own drinking and eventual sobriety. Finally, KCLS's own Wendy Pender, our older adult specialist, shares some of her favorite books on difficult subjects like death and dying and memory loss. Bonnie J. Ruff, and I write nonfiction, Beyond Birds and Bees, Bringing Home a New Message to Our Kids About Sex, Love, and Equality, is my third book, and a departure from my previous work, which is mostly literary memoir. So this book um, reflects my ongoing interest in families, health, um, parenting, and culture. So I also write, uh, especially recently, for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, all about nurturing healthy sexuality in children from zero on up. So your book takes readers along for the journey back and forth with your family between the Netherlands and the United States. Can you tell us about your experiences in both places? Sure. Specifically as relates to sexuality or... Yeah, I think sort of generally, but related to the book too. Sure, definitely. So um, when our oldest child was still our only child and just not even quite two. My husband, Dan, and I had an opportunity to leave uh, Minnesota, where we were living at the time, even though we're originally from the Puget Sound area, uh, and live in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, thanks to a job change for Dan. So... We left the U.S. not knowing, you know, what lessons life would have to offer us. But, you know, when you're in that stage of parenting, you're really watching everywhere for signs and um, clues and hints about how to do this this parenting job. What are the other moms and dads and grandparents and nannies and babysitters up to out there? So my example shifted quickly to a Dutch example. So I noticed all kinds of things that were similar and different about the way parenting is approached in the Netherlands in general, a little more relaxed, I could say. So that was a nice shift. Um, But I definitely started to see things jumping out at me that I thought were a little odd um, about the way the Dutch approach teaching young people about bodies, love, and relationships, uh, sexuality for sure. So that ranged from simple little things like you'd see a lot more comfort with nudity. You might see uh, lots of kids just splashing around naked in the neighborhood wading pool or um, more comfort in the all genders locker room at the neighborhood pool. And in general, I was just seeing this line between everyday non-sexual nudity and erotic nudity seemed sharper in the culture where I was living compared to what I was used to in my American life. So that got me curious about exploring that line and if maybe Maybe it needed to be a little clearer, even in my own family. So that's one example. But there are many more of how basically the Dutch approach, and it took me a long time to figure out, to be honest, what I was seeing. I wasn't, I didn't know the incredible value of what I was witnessing until much, much later. In fact, not until after we moved back to the U.S. But some of the other just quickly things I would see is a lot more gender neutral styles, which made me, gave me opportunities to question 
even just in myself, my attention to gender and noticing that parents seem to want their kids to be perceived as kids first. And so the first question, you know, that they don't want people to look at their kids and think, is it a boy or a girl? They just want people to look at their kids and think it's a kid. And so that seemed to be emphasized in kids' style of dress and fashion. Uh, those little things were things that I brought home with me. And certainly, I mean, I could, I can share many more examples. Um, but ultimately it all added up to an approach that normalized bodies, love, relationships, sexuality, reproduction for kids from a very young age. And ultimately, when I got back and looked around me, uh, started to see kind of my American culture with fresh eyes. I'm not someone who ever took a gender studies class. I'm not a trained sex educator. I was a mom and a journalist looking around and seeing, wait, this is really different. And noticing the differences in the things that we tend to offer boys and girls from an early age back once we moved back to the U.S. This was just after a year and a half living in the Netherlands. You know, whether it's books or toys or clothes or subjects or sports, all of those things I realized, those, those are the little things that start to contribute to those big divides that give us these differences in power and status for men and women in the U.S. and the, the damaging ideas that our human genders make us more different than alike. So that's when I got really curious and went back to the Netherlands and really kind of dug into my research after, unfortunately, I sort of missed my chance the first time. So we, we regularly returned there for me to take a look at not just, um, not just the wonderful sexual health outcomes that the Dutch enjoy, some of the best in the world, and not only the fact that the Dutch are also enjoying life in one of the world's most gender-equal societies, but really digging down and finding out what is it that parents and teachers are doing and saying around young children from an early age to actually build that incredible atmosphere. And even before you discovered the hows and what's of making that possible in the book, you speak to how it felt as an adult yes. moving through that society. Could you tell us what you noticed as a grown-up? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I had no idea what I was experiencing while I experienced it or where it came from. But I, aside from all those other little things, you know, the, you know, in Dutch preschools, the way teachers would use accurate body terminology and helping children learn to use the toilet and the way sex ed starts in kindergarten and the way Dutch parents have a more accepting attitude about teenage sexuality, for example, I also noticed something else that was really different, and it was me. I found myself feeling more comfortable in my own skin than I could remember feeling in my entire adult life. And I was busy, you know, at the time, chasing a toddler, finishing my first book. But I did try to give that some thought. What was going on? Why did, why did I feel like I could look up and make more eye contact and feel more connected and free in my day-to-day -day routines out in the neighborhood? And I realized one thing that was really missing, or, you know, wonderfully so, was that sense of male gaze. That's what we call it here in the U.S. And something that I think most American... I shouldn't say American, but girls and women who live in the U.S. or grow up in the U.S. really get used to living with is this sense of being watched, judged, evaluated, kind of, um, yeah, evaluated for your looks or what your apparent decisions are. That sense of being watched was comparatively missing for me living in Amsterdam. Um, 
once I realized, and because you also didn't see other people looking at each other in such a way. So it was an incredibly freeing sense. And, um, and again, I didn't know quite where that was coming from. Why no male gaze? Why no catcalling? Why no street harassment? I didn't know until much later when I was doing my research, finding out about those great sexual health statistics and also learning that the Dutch are third from the best ranked currently and, and were at the time for gender equality worldwide. Here in the U.S., we just jumped up three spots from 43 to 40. So we've got, we've got work to do. Um, but I realized that's when I learned that gender equality isn't just something that we measure on paper, you know, and that researchers, you know, come up with indices and they're, you know, just uh, numbers. It's so much more concrete than that. It's something that I could feel in my everyday life. It's a kind of freedom and sort of a sense that you're worthy and that you belong. Something I think most of us probably could remember from when we were kids. Yes, my body belongs here. I'm on earth, you know? Like, you just feel like, of course, and unapologetic, but also um, it's almost just more fun, like a sense of of community, that we're all here taking up space together as opposed to needing to jockey. And, yeah, so that was a real, a real eye-opener for me, was realizing that that number, you know, having some of the highest gender equality in the world was actually something that I could feel and a social atmosphere that gets built from the ground up day to day in families and in schools and in a wider society that values individuality and knows that an egalitarian mindset and way of life is better for everyone. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about how the sex ed that Dutch kids get starting very early actively contributes to that? Yes. Um, So starting at home is one thing, and definitely that would go back directly to using accurate terminology for bodies. One thing we learned from our daughter's preschool teachers, because we were just taking our cues again, left and right from, from the people around us, and they wanted to make sure that when we were helping our daughter learn to use the toilet and um, getting her out of diapers, that we were using neutral not just accurate, but also neutral or even positive language for body parts and body functions. So we wouldn't say the diaper is dirty or stinky or messy. We would say the diaper is full or wet or dry. Just little simple things. Very aware, though, of the power of language to form a person's idea of um, whether the body is something a good thing to be proud of and take care of and enjoy and communicate confidently about or something to be ashamed of and embarrassed about and to hide and be fearful of. So there were those are really active efforts by parents and teachers from an early age around language. And then also just, you know, this little preschool is kind of a great example. They had one bathroom with a little row of potties, and no matter what a child's sex or gender, they're all using the toilets, you know, in and out of the room, you know, side by side if needed, watching each other kind of figure out how to get this, you know, skirt back down or overalls back up, whatever it is. So uh, getting used to one another's bodies, again, that sense of normalization, um, that this isn't weird and it's not gross, and it's not really funny. It just is. Just like you get used to seeing your your classmates' face and hands when they're doing their work outside the bathroom, you can get used to seeing other parts of their body too. And it stops being that interesting in a way that's really healthy, that normalization. So that, that continued... Um, right up into kindergarten. And Dutch kindergartners actually start 
uh, at age four, so you, what we would consider preschool age, they get sex ed starting in, in many schools a week a year all the way on up. And I, when I first heard that, I was like, yeah, right. You know, that, what could that possibly look like? Because I had no idea I would eventually, since my daughter was too young for it then, have the opportunity to go back and actually see that in action. And I'll tell you, the things that kids can learn from an early age, I remember I actually got sentimental or somehow just really touched, I would say, watching uh, those lessons. I watched a lesson for first graders where they were just, their teacher was teaching them about body differences, giving them language for body parts, and also clarifying when it's necessary to use this language and when it's not, because of course the kids are about to run off to recess, and I thought, now what are we going to do? But he, he made the made the case that these these are the names for our body parts. These things are normal, and and he said these things are important, and we speak of them when necessary. Such a simple, beautiful lesson. But also at that age, kids start to get lessons about consent with a little lesson about doing different sensations on their own arm and then finding out from a neighbor and those around them if everybody likes the same things or not and learning that they need to observe those differences and respect them. They also get lessons really early on about how to recognize gender stereotypes. First, they just find out the ones they themselves have, the teachers drawing pictures up on the board and asking the kids, you know, what should the boy have? What should the girl have? Um, Just shows them the differences that they hold and then eventually starts to give them exercises, little games, toy sorting, clothing sorting, and questioning gently and then more and more as the kids get older about really why can't that be for a girl? Why shouldn't this be for a boy? And along with those lessons, encouraging kids to to make and maintain cross-gender friendships right out of preschool and into middle, and through middle childhood. I saw young people maintaining those friendships so that they didn't have kind of the strange, awkward, hormone-laden sort of clash of reconnection in adolescence, but, you know, kind of like, oh, you again. You know, I I know you. I know how to talk to you. I've known you all my childhood. So, um, again, those lessons just build. I got to see third graders getting lessons on love and crushes and how those are normal, healthy things that most people are, that's perfectly expected to have those things. Not everyone has to, but it's not something to tease about and it's never something to be ashamed of, to have feelings of romantic love. They give a lot of credence to the emotional lives of children in ways that just really struck and inspired me. Which is why I went from being a mom who moved to the Netherlands, never thinking she'd even put the words kids and sex into the same sentence, to one who's now got her latest book out with uh, both those words right on the cover. So you touched on this just a little bit. Um, A lot of the examples that you give are from your own life and from your interactions with your own children. Um, But a lot of the way that kids learn about relationships and sexuality and their bodies happens outside of a family setting. So parents have some control over their own interactions with their kids, but much less over what's happening at school or sort of general cultural messages. What are some steps that people can take towards broader social change in this area? I'm so glad you asked that. Well, first of all, I do think the piece that starts at home that I think lots of parents are especially tuned into now and and then even more so thanks to the Me Too movement, is a sense of wanting to raise young people without body shame, without shame. I hear a lot of parents say that, and I know that was really important to me too. So 
that begins with normalization at home, those little things we can do. So if we've been treating a child like our their naked body is a normal thing from the time that they're born, then that delays that moment when they get the message that, hey, your naked body's not a normal thing. And it gives them time to build up a sense of confidence and even belief around, well, yes, it is. I believe it is. So I think giving them that time and buffer at home and, yeah, so things about, you know, nudity, um, being accepting of children exploring their own bodies, those kinds of things are things that we can do from the very beginning in, in, a, in a way that lets them know that, and actually in giving accurate terminology too, like I'm, for, for a while I tried to be on board with the idea of telling kids, now I'm going to tell you all about how reproduction works, I'm going to tell you about all these body parts, but make sure you don't tell anyone what you know. And this is an at-home conversation. I'm really over that now. I, I, I'm sorry, you know, or, or you're welcome for the, for the warning, whatever it is. Like I think the more accurate terminology that young people get, the better. And you know who backs me up on that is organizations such as the World Health Organization and others that have for decades recognized that comprehensive sexuality education for people of all ages and all genders is a human right. So um, I'm happy to have young people feel like they can be proud and confident in the knowledge that they have and in the bodies that they're going around the world in. But then, yes, by the time they're older, a little older out in the world, having teacher influences, other families that they're um, hanging out with, I think one of the most important things we can do, aside from talking with our children, is this, finding ways to talk to one another as adults about the messages and experiences that we want our young people to have about bodies and love, sexuality and relationships, gender as well. So for us to have those conversations with each other, we, you know, the drop off for the play date, if I happen to know that my child has been uh, playing doctor lately, maybe it's time to check in with the other parent about what rules they have for that game and see if our rules line up or not and make a plan about that. But for whatever reason, you know, we would rather tell our children, now I'm going to tell you this stuff, but when you go to so-and-so's house, don't won't mention it, then to check in with so-and-so's parent and say, hey, this is some stuff my kid knows, presuming it's probably the same at your house, but I wanted to just let you know that this knowledge is in the air. Um, you know, I just, we put it on the kids sometimes to protect our discomforts that we have between ourselves as adults. And, you know, or, you know, don't, don't tell grandma you know how babies get made. Right? <laughs> uh, just let's leave that here. To me, it's like we're more, we're more interested in protecting sometimes other adults' discomfort, and we, we ask children to hold that burden for us. That, means, that makes me sad to think about that. So I hope this book can change that and just open up the conversation in book clubs and schools, you know, the places that I visit. If communities are reading together and talking about, it, it naturally invites people to talk about these things. I'm wondering why you think it's so hard for American parents in particular to talk about bodies and love and relationships and sex with our children. Because nobody was nice enough to do that with us. <laughs> I mean, really, that's the first thing that I realized is the first thing that I would hope that every adult who's uncomfortable with that can do is just sit with that for a minute and compassion for themselves. Because chances are, if they're thinking about trying to offer their child something new, something shame-free, uh, the opportunity to be unembarrassed about themselves and express themselves as who they are, 
chances are that they're having they're trying to figure out how to do that in the absence of having had someone do that for them to offer them an early open accepting compassionate start to their life as a sexual person which you know most of us probably are so um yeah, it's hard because we don't have great examples. It's hard because in many cases we don't have good information or we think we don't have good information. And I do th- and it's definitely difficult because we probably feel extra pressure to get it right because we don't know for sure if school is going to back us up whatsoever. Uh, one wonderful thing that does happen in a lot of our schools and increasingly, even without medically accurate information about sexuality until kids are arguably a bit too old, you know, maybe fourth, fifth grade, or even older, um, at least many of our kids are getting more social-emotional lessons at school about empathy and decision-making and breaking down stereotypes. More and more, I know that teachers want to be talking with kids about consent. So that's that's like half or more of what makes comprehensive sexuality education world-class sex ed. So without even necessarily meaning to, we are getting some of that to our kids. Um, But yeah, we we probably have that extra pressure because we don't know what or if our kids are going to get sex ed-wise at school. And then, you know, the truth is, I know this is true for me, I think my values, my intellectual values, are always a few paces ahead of, you know, my gut feelings about things, right? So I know what I think is important. I know what I believe in. Um, and I'm, I'm always kind of shaping and trying to be evolved in my mindset. But that doesn't mean that even the 10th the time my kid asks for a clarification about, you know, what's your vulva and what's your vagina, you know, which is which, then um, that I don't sort of t- have to take a quick deep breath and, and relax because, yeah, it's just um, we don't have the practice. We don't have the, that normalization. The other thing, they're actually right about several reasons why this is. We definitely have the, that cultural background, but also we have a really peculiar thing here in American culture where we think that giving young people information about life, let's say sexuality, is potentially damaging for them in some really scary ways. We think that it might make them go do that, go do that behavior which is actually just a logical fallacy. There's, there's no evidence that giving young children or old, older children information about sexuality is the same as giving them permission. And not only that, giving them autonomy with their bodies is also not the same as giving them permission, interestingly. And yet it feels like we're telling them to go do something that we don't believe they ought to do. And then secondly, we also fear sometimes that giving especially children information about sexuality, and this is deeply cultural and unique to us, is a way of taking away their childhood. We say we're taking away their innocence. Yet what I've observed and what experts have shown me is that that children actually are able to, in some ways, enjoy their childhood longer in the security that they know what they need to know about themselves to be comfortable and safe and to communicate and and to en- and also to enjoy and take care of their bodies and to not have that kind of magical thinking and gaps that in a traumatic way have to get filled properly t- later mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I think we have a lot that we're up against 
it is a a big challenge. And the one thing I love, actually two things I love to tell parents is first of all, I mean, I know when I see something that I want to change, I want to just make it all better right away. But um, there's a teacher here in Seattle, a wonderful writer, Priscilla Long, and she has this great way of encouraging herself or her students to make changes. She doesn't say, go fix it. She says, can you make a 5% improvement in that direction? And I just think that's wonderful because real change really does come small step by small step. But then also, we as parents, I mean, there, I, I have heard from expert after expert we don't we we don't risk what we think we do you don't have to worry that you'll tell your child too much and hurt them in some way as long as you're trying to educate them they'll tune you out when they're done listening we also are incredibly skilled already at communicating with our little people about complicated things in life we talk to them about health. We talk to them about faith. We talk to them about mortality when that comes up. We talk to them sometimes when some crazy political thing comes out of the radio and they ask, what's that all about? We find the words. We're experts at that already. And finally, I also think that it's good for us to know that even if somebody didn't do this for us, even if we're all mixed up about how we feel emotionally or psychologically or physically about sex and sexuality, that doesn't mean that through that we can't still tell our, give our kids a healthy, wholesome, shame-free message. We do that all the time. We kind of put a little, a little space between the things that we know we need to work on for ourselves and may or may not ever get to, and the, the fresh, renewing, uh, hopeful messages that we want to give our young people. And in this case, they're messages that not only help them to be healthy and happy and whole in their bodies, but also will give them the tools to help build gender equality and support social justice, which is something we all want for our kids to do in their generation. Well, there are so many paradigm-shifting opportunities in your book. I hope everyone who listens reads it. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm curious, are there any lessons you have for non-parents, child-free folks, to like join in this discussion and creating a more egalitarian world? Thank you for asking that. I've had many folks without children, child-free, however, or, or maybe hoping to be future parents, but but not yet, reach out to me after reading this book and, um, and to say thanks because what's happening, and I think the reason that people who start reading keep reading and, you know, who else this applies to are, are children, I mean, are young people who are reading the book. I've heard of a lot of adolescents and uh, older teens whose parents say, go ahead and read this and who actually pick it up and stay with it. And it's because it gives all of us the opportunity to reflect on the lessons that we may have been brought up with. And there are so many things, so many tweaks that I've decided through kind of learning some painful lessons along the way that I want to make in the way I interact in the world with other people. So a lot of that has to do with with gender, for example, and changing the way I initiate conversations with people and trying to not have that be uh, a gender-specific or appearance-specific kind of entree into conversation. That's just one tiny example. But we're all... I've heard from many readers that reading this book has given them an opportunity to rethink the way they were raised and to reflect differently on their own bodies and their own relationships with their bodies in a way that they found very um, very helpful 
and welcome. So I would hope that any reader could have that experience of at any age and uh, whether or not they're directly involved with raising children. I think we're all directly involved with changing the gender dynamics in our society and supporting more a more socially just world for everyone in it. Thank you so much for coming. Oh my gosh, what a pleasure. And I am a writer. I'm the author of the essay collection, Nothing Good Can Come From This. So you kind of drop hints throughout the book that there are lots of other things that you could have written about, a difficult childhood, your love of music, but you chose to focus this first collection on drinking and sobriety. Why? Well, I think it's because it was such, partly because it was such a huge change in my life, um, you know, getting sober in my early 40s. There, I hadn't seen, and I hadn't seen a lot of stories that were really exactly like mine, of someone who didn't have that hard bottom that we associate with people drinking. You know, I didn't have a DUI. I didn't open the hospital, that kind of thing, although lots of people do. And it was fascinating. And, and most of all, what I had found is that sobriety was extremely interesting. And so, and there's not a lot about that in the recovery space. It's often like, well, I drank and I drank and I drank. Something terrible happened. I got better. Everything's fine now. Um, and I thought, no, there's so much more to say about it. And so I wanted to write a book that really focused on that side of it, mm-hmm. about how interesting things were. And because a book takes so long to write, you want to keep yourself interested. So I thought, well, this could keep me interested for a while. Okay. Yeah. Um, you draw a line between being a woman, particularly a woman in the corporate world, mm-hmm. and drinking too much. Tell us about choosing not to be a 24-hour woman. Uh, yes. <laughs> Well, I didn't realize that I was one for the longest time, and it wasn't until I stopped drinking that I started looking around. You know, anytime you leave a culture, you see that culture more clearly. It's like when I lived in Italy in my 20s for a little while, I could see America very clearly, and I started looking back and seeing just how much pressure I'd been putting myself under to be perfect at all times, and I think I made a life that I could only get through with drinking. And I thought, well, that's no good. And if you, if I can't drink anymore, then obviously either my life's going to be intolerable or I have to change it. And that's when I started to, you know, I didn't make dramatic changes. I didn't quit my job or anything like that. But I started to just pull back a little bit and think about what I needed, how I was feeling, um, not just about pleasing other people all the time. Mm-hmm. Another thing about when you quit drinking and you think you can't is you realize, well, there's probably lots of things I can do that I think I can't. So things like being more outspoken, I'd always been shy about that. But I thought, well, I I mean, I'm good. Like if I if I quit drinking, I can do anything. So I, I just started to look at what the pressures women were under, especially in the corporate world. Drinking was kind of painted as like a manifestation of feminism. And I actually went back and read about the flappers and how they were known for drinking and smoking. And it was considered an explicitly feminist act. And I thought about, you guys are probably too young to remember this, but the Virginia Slims woman of my childhood, um, she was smoking a cigarette and it said, you've come a long way, baby, an explicitly feminist ad. We know now that like, it's not great. (laughs) That's not good for you. And I thought, 
and of course, you know, no amount of smoking is good for you. A little drinking is okay, I guess. But, but I thought, you know, are we just following that same path mm-hmm. of we have a right to self-destruct just like men? But that doesn't mean that you have to do it. So you wrote uh, an article that went viral that yes. got passed around <laughs> a lot of the internet I read. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the reaction to that? Yes. So that was such a funny story. Um, I had been working with my agent to put together a book proposal that became this book. And she said, you know, for the package, would you want to write something that expresses anger? And I remember it was a beautiful day, kind of like this. And I thought, huh, you know, I was feeling good. And I thought, well, I guess I could try. And I went home sort of not knowing if I could do that. And this essay, Anjali, came out, which was very angry. <laughs> um, and I thought, huh, there was a lot of anger there. So I just kind of put it up on the Internet to see if maybe some people would see it. You know, I had no expectations. And I think three days later, I was on Radio Scotland. I mean, it just took off like wildfire. Um, I would say most of the reactions I got were really supportive. A lot of people said they felt very, um, such a cliche phrase, but they felt seen. Um, some men wrote to me to say, I think I've been that guy. You know, I read about some, some men on a panel at work who were very um, condescending to me. And they, they were like, I think, I think that's me. Um, I also heard from people who were very angry at me. There was the usual, like, men who just don't like feminists. And you know, I don't really, like, whatever. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. Um, but there were a lot of women who felt like I was saying any woman who ever had a glass of wine was both an alcoholic and a tool of the patriarchy. And um, we're pretty upset about that, as I would be, too, if that had been what I was saying. Um, some of them were so defensive that I thought, hmm, that's interesting, you know, like, if you're that mad at me, then maybe you want to look at yourself um, and, and your own life. But, uh, but yeah, there was a sense that I was trying to take some fun away from women that they feel like they should be able to have. And I wasn't actually trying, I was talking about myself, you know, I wasn't really trying to take anything away from anyone. But it was, it was an amazing reaction. I got letters from every continent except Antarctica. Um, and it was just... Like, your life is taken over by this maelstrom. Mm -hmm. It took months to pass, and it it really changed my life. I was struck by this line about how you finally quit drinking. Mm -hmm. You said, the difference was that I had been trying to kill the want, and now I was just saying no to it. So to me, that actually sounds harder. (laughs) Like, the idea that you can say, I want something, Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to say no, instead of trying to say, like, okay, I'm going to stop wanting this. Yeah. Um, talk about that? Sure. It is harder. Um, I tried so many things just to want to, I tried so many things to make me want to stop drinking because of course it's much easier when you don't want to do something anymore, but none of them worked. And so I got to the point where I thought, okay, let's just say no to it. And that's really hard, but at least it's the definitive thing I can do. It's kind of like if you had, um, you know, diabetes and your doctor said, well, you can't have simple sugars anymore. You would just be like, you'd still want them, but you'd think, okay, do I want to live? Do I want to be healthy and get better or not? And so you'd say, okay, I'm giving them up. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how it felt to me, only more like in my soul and in my body. And it was actually really helpful because once I decided that was my path, 
it was just like flipping a switch. Like, okay, we're going to say no to this. And all my energy for a couple of weeks just went to saying no. And if I kept trying to kind of trick myself into quitting, I'd probably still be doing it today, Mm -hmm. six years later. (laughs) A lot of the path to recovery do involve like complete abstinence and Mm -hmm. trying to achieve that over some kind of moderation. Um, Much like you were talking about, there's a traditional narrative arc for stories of recovery. Um, There's a similar, like, this is how we get sober. (laughs) This is the way, right? Yeah. I am, I tried moderation um, so many times. And I realize now that if you have to try that hard to moderate, you really should just quit. Um, Because people who have to, people who can moderate, they just moderate. You know, maybe they feel a little deprived the way I might feel deprived not eating ice cream on a certain day, but it's not a big deal. Um, But I've known people who, I mean, I believe in harm reduction. Like if you're an alcoholic and you can drink less, that's something. You know, I'm a big believer in that kind of thing. But for me, just quitting was a hundred times easier than moderating because it takes all those decisions off the table. It's just like... Well, I don't do this anymore. I immediately started saying to myself, if I wanted to drink, I would say, but you don't drink. I didn't say you quit drinking five days ago. I just started framing myself as a non-drinker. And that really, really helped just saying it. And much like the people who were sort of prickly in their reaction Mm -hmm. to your story, you describe maybe some resistance Um, Mm -hmm. when people either see themselves in there. uh, Can you talk about maybe the way that you talk about being sober? Yeah. I, for a while, I didn't tell many people just because it was easier for me to just handle it on my own. And I think that's pretty common. Um, I was lucky in that most of my friends, and it might be because I was a little older, most of them just said, oh, that's great, you know, or they just didn't really care one way or the other. It's like, fine. But there are, I think, always people who are resistant. Um, I got some like, but I drink like you do, and I'm not that bad. And I would just say, well, but this is for me, because you can't really judge how someone else is drinking. Um, there's definitely a sense that um, people say, well, can I, um, now I feel bad drinking in front of you, even if you say, it's fine, it's fine, this is me. Um, they feel very self-conscious, like you're counting their drinks. I always think of it as like, if someone's gluten-free, I'm not, but I'm not watch I'm not monitoring them um they're really not inconveniencing me and so when I talk about sobriety I just say you know this is just my thing I'm an alcoholic like you don't want me to drink believe me um and mostly people just take it in that casual spirit I do let people know sometimes if I'm going to like I'm going to a conference next week and there's all these social activities and I just said I just want to let everyone know I'm okay being invited to bars because people don't know and they're kind and they don't want to make you uncomfortable. And so I just said, just so you know, I'm fine. Not everyone is, but I'm okay going to bars. So you were sober for like 18 months before you mm-hmm. went to an AA meeting mm-hmm. and uttered the phrase. <laughs> even when you had known for a long time, it was, mm-hmm. it's clear in the book that you had known for a long time that it was a problem. And even when you had stopped drinking, naming it mm-hmm. was still kind of hard. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to say I'm an alcoholic. It's... Um, or it was. It doesn't feel hard anymore. It's there's such dire imagery associated with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so, no. It's like who wants to say that? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really admitting that like this is poison to you, and um, 
And I think when I finally started saying it, I thought, well, it's whatever I am. So I'm not someone in terrible straits. I'm not a desperate person. So maybe it's not such a bad thing to be. Um, I also think naming it is kind of up to the individual. You know, I have friends who quit drinking, and they certainly would be what anyone would consider, you know, an, an addicted drinker, but they don't use that, that word. Mm-hmm. They just say, um, I don't mess with alcohol anymore. You know, it's, it's not good for me. So I think it's kind of all in how you want to frame it. But I also think we need to change the picture of what alcoholism is because it's so common. <laughs> and one way we can do that is by, by talking about it and owning that label. Mm-hmm. So we chose the book for the episode because Mm -hmm. addiction and sobriety can be hard to talk about, like Mm -hmm. you just said. Mm -hmm. But I was also struck in the book by how, frankly, you write about wealth and privilege and having those things in your adult life. Mm -hmm. And there's a post on your website where you kind of worry a little bit about what the reception (laughs) is going to be about that aspect of the book. Yeah. Um, How did you decide what to include and how has the reception Mm -hmm. been? It was really interesting. So I wanted to write an honest book. And, you know, the truth is that I worked at a tech company that you all know for 12 years and I made a lot of money there. I mean, it's just, that's just what happened. And I had noticed that women don't write about money a lot and women don't talk about money a lot. I mean, probably people don't, but women especially. And there had been some pushback to my viral essay about the fact that, well, you're, you're privileged. You seem to make money. You're white. Um, how, how can you even think you had any problems? Well, I mean, of course that rub me the wrong way because I knew I showed me someone without problems. Um, and I also thought, you know, this was not a sociological book or a sociological essay. It was about my experience. I want to be true to it. And so it was really from that, that wanting to be true to my experience that I said I had to include some of that stuff mm-hmm. because it drove the way I drank and it drove the way I got sober. Um, you know, my life in some ways, because I had sort of a fancy job and I wasn't punching the clock and nobody was monitoring me, I could get away with stuff that somebody who is, you know, working in a hotel laundry or something um, couldn't, you know, who's being watched more closely. And when I got sober, I had more resources available. I didn't go to rehab, but I could if I have insurance, I had therapy, I had things like that. But I wanted to show that it was a double-edged sword. Um, and also a little bit of what getting to that point in my life did to me. You know, that that kind of privilege does not come without a cost. Um, the reaction has mostly been fine. It wasn't nearly as bad as I expected. But there are people who are like, I mean, they'll literally say, ugh, one more white woman writing about getting sober. And it's like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like I can't, that's that. Yeah. That's yeah. who I am. We need to hear those other stories. I'll do whatever I can to amplify the voices of like women of color, people of color, um, people who, who didn't have my kind of resources, but I'm not the one to be writing those stories. Mm-hmm. One other thing about the privilege question, which is from a literary point of view, I wanted to take the risk of writing you know, a narrator, it's me, but I'm a character that people might not like. Um, there have been a lot in the media in the last few years about unlikable female narrators and like, oh my God, is that terrible? And so I was like, you know what? I'm, I could pretend to be like Debbie from Carpool or I could write who I am. And I saw this come into play in Hillary Clinton's presidential run, too. People said, she's not every woman. And I said, well, no, she's not. She's secretary of state. She's a senator, you know. Um, and so that came into it, too, is I thought, I want to write who I actually am, just to challenge that idea that, um, that I have to be likable. What's your next book about? It will 
be, I can't say too much yet, but it's kind of on the theme of ambition and and what it is to be an ambitious woman. Um, I've always, my entire life, been from my childhood, been someone who wanted big things, wanted to do big things. And um, the world's kind of weirded out when women want to do big things. Weirded out is a nice way to put it. (laughs) And um, so I wanted to write a memoir that kind of explores that, like what it's like to be someone with like stars in her eyes and a world that's kind of like, on the one hand, saying women can do anything, but uh, once the women want to do those things, there's always a reason they shouldn't. So I'm just in the early stages of that. Do you have any advice for aspiring people who have maybe something scary that they want to talk about in their writing? I say just tell the story. First of all, you can always write it and decide much later if you're going to show it to anyone. Um, I will also say that everything I've ever written that I was terrified to say, what I found out is there's so many people who have the same story. Um, And you are helping to normalize your experience for those people. You're letting them know that they're less alone. My friend Eva Hagberg Fisher, this is a book I've read recently. She wrote a book called How to Be Loved. It came out about a month and a half ago. And she had these really catastrophic sort of rare um, illnesses that that tore her life apart. And um, she writes about those, but the context of the book is that's how she was broken down to the point that she had to let herself be loved and like let other people take care of her. And she says, you know, I didn't write the book for like the hundred other people on earth who've had this combination of symptoms. I wrote the book for anyone who felt like they couldn't be vulnerable or couldn't be loved. Um, you don't have to be broken down like I was to get to that point. And, and, and I think that's the value in writing about your own experience is that it takes the shame away. You take anything out into the light and the shame goes away and um, people will relate and it will help people. I mean, I didn't write my book necessarily to help people. I wanted to tell an interesting story, but knowing that it has, that it's made people feel less alone or made them feel like sobriety isn't the end of the world. Um, that's, you know, that's huge, but, but yeah, write it and worry. People confuse writing with publishing and um, write it and decide later. You can take years, write it anonymously. Just do something. Getting out of your body is helpful, I think. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for having me in. Yeah, yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, pleasure. Instead of having Britta and I talk about uh, books about difficult topics, we thought it would be fun to have another KCLS librarian join us and talk about some of her favorite books about difficult topics. So we have Wendy Pender with us today, who's our older adult specialist. Wendy, tell us who you are and what you do at KCLS. Great. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Britta. I'm the Older Adults Program Coordinator. I work in the Service Center at Issaquah, and I work throughout the county with the local librarians, connecting them to resources around aging, around death, around um, issues that affect us in later life. People are always like, well, why do you need an Older Adults Coordinator? And when you think about it, adulthood is a long part of our lifespan. 
in our 20s and 30s, we're concerned with choosing a career, choosing a mate, whether or not to start a family. That whole universe of concerns is quite different from when you're 50, 60, 70, 80. You might be thinking about end-of-life concerns, grandparenting, retirement. We all have to face Social Security and Medicare. Those That universe of concerns is where I live for programming and services. So you kind of touched on there a lot of the topics that you're thinking about in your everyday work life are things that people don't always feel comfortable discussing. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to tell you about some of my favorite books yes. about this because there's a lot of help out there. And I'll start with one that I think many people will have already read, but if you haven't, I want you to put it on your list. Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. He is a surgeon in Boston, and he wrote this book about five years ago, which is what I think of as a cultural change agent. This book really opened up the conversation around end of life and dying. And one of the things, it's not discouraging to read books about dying. I want to comfort people because every book I've read about dying is really a book about how to live really about how do we live in a way that is meaningful, that is in accordance with our values. We communicate our wishes. So I want to help people feel comfortable around those end-of-life discussions. And Atul does an amazing job in this book. It's a great book discussion book. If your book discussion group hasn't already read it, I really want to um, encourage you to get your hands on it and go through it with your group, your tribe, your family. Great. What else? Another one, another universal experience is grieving. Another thing that affects us often in later life, we have more losses. We lose friends, we lose jobs, we lose the structure that we are used to. Our children grow up and leave often an empty nest. There's lots of loss and adjustments that we have to make as we age. A book that guides us wonderfully through this is called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand by a psychotherapist named Megan Devine. And one of the things I love about Megan's book is she's a psychotherapist who helped people through through these transitions for years. And she writes in her introduction, I wish I could go back and apologize to all of the people that I have helped because I had no idea what they were going through. Her partner dies, and then she's like, oh, now I get it. Now I'm, I'm walking this walk. And so she finds that we are lacking in tools in culture. We, we are so oriented toward, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Things are fine. Push it away. Get over it. And this is a book that's very full of empathy about how do we accompany ourselves and each other through this universal experience of loss. It's getting a lot of press now. I think it's going to be one of those cultural change agents like Atul Gawans. And when you think about it, let's, let's get away from end of life. Let's go to birth. In the 50s, you went to the hospital for two weeks. They put you under. You had a baby by a miracle and then came out and came home. Now, we share birth videos. We talk about it. Oh, what are you feeling? How are you hanging? All that stuff. I feel like we're at a place in our culture where we're ready for these conversations about these difficult topics. So thank you for putting it on the 10 to try 
game plan yeah. for the year because yeah. we're ready. Well, I think there's something too about books as kind of like a tool. Like yes. you're saying, like it gives you a place to start with something like grief, for example, where if someone you know has suffered a loss, it can be really scary to even know. Yes. Like you, you want to be there, but to even know like how to start. And sometimes just having an author or a book say like, it's okay. And here's something you can refer to, or here's like a piece of, you know, equipment essentially. Yes. That exactly. like, okay, the door is open. Yep. And even if we're going to stumble through it, at least we're, at least we're stumbling. Yes, exactly. Know. They're tools for the journey. Yeah. And I feel like that's how I go through life. Everything, every conversation I have with someone, I'm like, oh, oh, here's a book, here's a book, here's a book. You know, it's like, <laughs> these are our friends, people who have walked the path yeah. that can show us the way, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I tend to read nonfiction, but there's a lot of fiction out there. It's like, oh, finally somebody gets me, you know. Yeah, we've all had that experience. It's the great thing about books. And you have one more pick? I, I do have one more. Well, if I don't have time for 16 more, <laughs> yes, I have one more pick that... This I've been a librarian for 25 years. I have my library degree from the University of Pittsburgh, and I also have a gerontology certificate from the University of Washington. So I sort of live in that world of aging, and one of the dynamics in that world right now is the increase of people with dementia. So many of us, if we don't encounter it ourselves, we'll encounter it in our families, in our neighbors, in our coworkers, in our friends. Fortunately, the news is good that the rates of dementia may be declining, but because so many of us are getting older, and being older is one of the um, primary risk factors in getting dementia, we need to learn how to navigate this in our society. Again, something we don't want to talk about. And again, we used to feel this way about cancer. You know, we'd lower the voice. She has cancer. You know, it was very quiet. And now there are parades and t-shirts and ribbons. And it's something we talk about. Dementia, Alzheimer's, memory loss, we are at that cultural tipping point. And a book that is so great for dealing with this is called Creating Moments of Joy by Jolene Brackey. And I meant to give you context about, so I've been a librarian for 25 years. I've been talking to thousands of people about thousands of books over the last couple of decades. More people have come to me about this book than all other books combined. People will come to me and say, I bought a copy for every nurse who was taking care of my mom. I bought a copy for every family member who deals with grandma. It's so helpful in all the little things. It's just a, like two pages per topic. And the topics that come up are, for instance, helping a visitor feel comfortable when Uncle Bob isn't how they remember him. And Uncle Bob gets distressed because who is this person in his room? And you know that uh, Uncle Bob's known this visitor for years. How it related to me was when I, um, I wish I'd had this book 30 years ago with my grandma. She would say things like, well, nobody showed me the stack of photographs that are here on the, on the coffee table. And I immediately would feel defensive. We just went through this this morning. What do you mean I didn't show them to you? Had I had the tools in this book, I would have realized, just go through the photos with her. Just say, oh, I'm so sorry, Grandma. Let's look at them together. Oh, here here you are. Here's the place we used to live. Whatever. Um, I didn't 
know. When we know better, we can do better. And this book, it's by a um, hospice nurse in Montana. She wrote such a helpful guide for navigating those challenges. What do you do when somebody refuses to change their clothes? What do you do when somebody's saying, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home? And they are home. How do you handle those typical, typical heartbreaking situations? And a lot like the book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the answers lie in being with the person. We cannot solve these issues. We don't cure them. We accompany ourselves and others through these life conditions. And so those are toolboxes for every family, every community that are really, really helpful. And I hope you'll pick up one of them. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.